So today, though, we're going to be looking at a biblical understanding and practice of prayer, specifically how the church unites in prayer, how the church unites in prayer. So if you're in Acts 4, we're going to begin our reading in verse number uh, 23. We're going to read down through verse number 31. Hear the word of the Lord. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? And the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for you this morning. Gracious God, thank you again that we can be here to study your word, to know you more because we've come to church today. And I pray that our hearts would be transformed today, this morning. God, I pray that we would uh, get a better understanding of what prayer should look like as far as our church is concerned. And I pray that we would be different because we came today. Give me wisdom. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill me with your power. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1906, a church in Pyongyang, Korea had heard of what God was doing in other parts of the world, and they desperately wanted God to work in their congregation. So they determined that the best thing to do was not add a new program or change the way they were doing all of the things they did then, but to gather intentionally in prayer. So they began to pray every day at the noon hour that God would work in a special way in their church. Every single day, uh, these, this church came together and prayed daily that God would work. Now, by January of 1907, they, had, they gathered to pray one Sunday quite discouraged because it seemed that nothing had happened. It seemed that there was no answer, that God was not going to work. And they came together to pray, asking God to shake the heavens and move in their midst. And while they were praying, one of the men in the church became convicted of his sin and confessed that he had sinned against a brother and sister in the church. And it was as, as if at that very moment, God answered the prayer of the church and radically transformed them and changed that church moving forward. It took several months for God to move, but through the persistent prayer of the church, God answered and worked in a tremendous way. And when the church unites together in prayer, God does great things. Now, in our passage of scripture, we're at the very end of a really eventful time in church history. Um, now, the church is in its infancy. According to some Bible historians, Pentecost happened less than a year before we get to chapter number three. So we're talking about a baby church. Like they, they don't even know what's going on yet as far as the church is concerned. They're still figuring it all out. And now we come to chapter number three. And by the, by the end of chapter number three, beginning of four, the first sign of problems start to show up. Okay, so cha chapter number three, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you kind of know what's going on here. But Peter and John, they're going into the temple. They see this man uh, laying by the beautiful gate. He's been there daily begging for uh, sustenance. He's been lame from his 
uh, birth and he's asking them for money and what Peter looks at him and he says, I don't have silver and gold, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And this guy, he gets up, the Bible actually says he leaps up and he walks and he's leaping and praising God. And he's so full of joy because of the miracle God has done. And in the midst of all of this, because of who this man was and how uh, persistent he was at the temple every single day, um, everybody knew what was going on. Everybody knew who this guy was. And so a crowd came together. You know, if you saw somebody every day and their life radically changed, you would probably walk up and be like, what's going on over here, right? So that's what's happening. The crowd gathers and Peter and John are there and Peter sees it as an opportunity to preach the gospel and he preaches the gospel and many people are saved. In fact, uh, in verse number four of chapter four, we see that the number of the men was about 5,000. Now, if that was 5,000 at that one time or that the uh, congregation grew to 5,000 because of this, time. We're not really sure, but no matter the case, that's a lot of people who responded favorably to the gospel through this situation. And while these people were gathering around, the religious leaders, they didn't really care for this, did they? They didn't really like anything that was going on in the name of Jesus. Religious people honestly probably don't still today, but that's another sermon for another time. Um, but they, uh, they weren't about the, what Jesus had done and how the apostles were preaching Jesus. So they arrested him. They kept him in jail overnight. And then they question, questioned them the next morning about whose power and whose name they did it all. And Peter was filled with the Holy Ghost. So we see in verse number eight, and he does what every good apostle did back then. He preached the gospel to them and they didn't like that either. They were not a fan of that. So they saw the miracle. They saw the people's response and they didn't feel like they could do much. So they threatened them and sent them on their way. And the response that we, we just read seems to indicate that the church understood the severity of the situation. Like this wasn't just a passing threat like, oh, no big deal. No, this was a real potential problem for them. And so in verse number 23, we see that they come back, Peter and John come back to their own company or their companions or the gathering of the church there. And they reported everything that the chief priests and the elders said to them. They gave a detailed explanation. We don't know what exactly they said, but we assume they told them exactly what happened. And their response was prayer, united prayer. Look at verse 24. It says, and when they heard that, that being the report from Peter and John, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. They came together with a united voice and a united purpose, and they prayed to God about the circumstance that they were encountering. They were not panicking. They were not planning. They chose to pray. And the church's knee-jerk reaction was to unite together in prayer. And that should be our church's knee-jerk reaction as well to see the circumstances and problems around us and get on the same page in prayer and ask God to intervene. Because truly, that is the only way the church will ever have power. So as we look at this prayer of the first church, I want us to ask ourselves this question. Is this, the way that these church, this church prayed, is this how we as a church respond to the circumstances and problems that we encounter? When it comes down to it, I want us as a church to examine ourselves and ask, how are we doing in the matter of united prayer? And I want to point out two aspects of the way that the first church prayed and hopefully challenge us to make a commitment to pray together better. So first we see that the church prayed reverentially. The church prayed reverentially. They were not hasty in their prayer. 
Okay, they had a definite need, a serious problem, but they did not just rush into the throne room of deity and start asking and demanding things, did they? If you'll notice from the text, verse uh, 24 down through verse number 28, they spend the majority of their prayer focused on who God is instead of asking for God to do something. Their, their eyes were lifted upward to the one who could do something about the problem. And instead of just asking, they worshiped God through their prayers. They were reverential in their prayer. First, they acknowledged God's supreme authority. Look with me in verse number four. It says, and when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord. They begin by addressing God as Lord. Now, typically when we're reading the New Testament and we come across the word Lord, we're looking at a word that was translated from the Greek word kurios, which tends to refer to a relationship between a servant and a master. Okay, um, it's meant to acknowledge in a way that believers, our relationship with, to God now in one aspect is that we are his servants and he is our master. But in this verse where we see the word Lord, it's a different word. It's translated from the Greek word despotes. We actually get our English word despot from this word. It's the title that refers to one with absolute and complete authority and rule. It's much deeper than just like the servant master dynamic we tend to get with kurios. It speaks to God's broader rule and authority over everything. So while kurios has more direct application to believers, despotes applies to everyone, everything. All people, all places at all times are under the power and the sovereign authority of God. And this is how they began. They said, God, you are the sovereign Lord. And they continued, thou art God. They acknowledge his supreme divinity. So by beginning their prayer this way, they are acknowledging the power and sovereignty of God and addressing God as who he truly is, the one who is over all things. And isn't that interesting? The religious leaders have tried to tell them to stop and they're acknowledging we serve one much higher. God, he's above all and over all things. They acknowledge God's supreme authority, but then they acknowledge God's infinite power. Look at verse number 24 again. It says, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. They describe the works of God. They say, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. It seems to be a reference back to Psalm 146, 6. But they're ascribing to God the power to create all things in heaven, in earth, in the sea, and everything and everyone that fills them. They're acknowledging that the one to whom they are praying is powerful above all others and that there is none like him. He is the great creator God, sovereign over all things. And then they acknowledge God's determined purposes. Now, in verse number 25 and verse number 26, we're seeing a, basically a direct quotation from Psalm 2, 1 and 2. And they actually say it in their prayer. They rehearse the words of Scripture in their prayer. And it seems to me that they're acknowledging that God, through David, was explaining what would happen when the Messiah came. And in a way, I think they were recognizing and submitting to what God had already said in his word. So what did they say? Look at verse number uh, 25. This is the quotation of Psalm 2, 1 and 2. And as we read verse 25 and 26, consider the parallels between these two verses and what happens in verse number 27. Okay, so he says in verse number 25, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage? 
Okay, this speaks to those who are not of Israel acting arrogantly. It's literally the idea, if you can, if you can uh, mentally picture this, it's literally the idea of a horse uh, exhaling strong through his nostrils, prepared to charge into battle. It's like intense, like the heathen are angry and they're ready to go. They're, they're, they're angry against God. And if you look in verse number 27, he says, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles. That seems to be the reference here to the Gentiles. There seems to be a parallel between the Gentiles and the heathen raging against God. The quotation continues, it says, and the people imagine a vain thing. This is the idea of contriving empty and useless plans. And it seems to parallel in verse number 27 where it says with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They're, they're comparing their situation to the, the prophecy in Psalm 2. That continues, he's in verse 26, the kings of the earth stood up. I, I think this is paralleling with Herod in verse number 27. And then it goes on, and the rulers were gathered together. This seems to refer to Pontius Pilate, as we see in verse number 27, the procurator who ordered Jesus's death. There's this consistent theme that they're going through here. And it says that they were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. This is who they stood against. They were standing against Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, as we see at the beginning of verse number 27, where it says here in verse 27, for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus refers to, the, to the, Jesus being the Son of God. And then it continues, whom thou hast anointed is a reference to his Messiahship, to his being the anointed one of God. These people stood against him. They stood in opposition to Jesus. They killed him. Why? Look at verse 28. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. In other words, these people stood in opposition to Jesus Christ to fulfill exactly what God had determined to be done. Now, we know, according to the book of Revelation, that Jesus Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Amen. This was God's plan for redemption from the beginning, that the son would come and die for the sins of the world. And this was the, the consistent and faithful preaching of the apostles. If you look in Acts 2, Acts 3, and Acts 13, they preached that Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God to fulfill all that was written of him and shown by the mouths of the prophets. And these people that we just referenced here stood against Jesus Christ in human terms, sent him to the cross. They were used by God to bring about God's intended end. Now, it's similar to me to the story of Joseph. Think about the story of Joseph. Joseph was hated. He was cast into a pit. He was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused. He was imprisoned. Why? Well, Joseph says so in Genesis 50. Th these people meant it to evil, but God meant it to good to save much people alive. And the men who stood against Joseph, they intended to harm him. They intended to do evil against him. But God was using it to bring about much good. God allowed them to do evil against Joseph so that he could ultimately save them. And so it is with those listed in verse 27. They intended to stand together against Christ in an attempt to destroy him, but God had bigger and better plans. God's purpose was that Christ would die, rise again, and ascend into heaven victorious over sin, death, and the grave. And God allowed these people to do what they did, so to quote Joseph, to save much people alive. The church was just acknowledging that God is sovereign and has a purpose and plan for all things. Don't be afraid of that. God may not have authored the exact details of this. We don't know because we're not God, but he sure did allow it. And by allowing it, man, his plans came to pass. 
And we're sitting here today. The church was acknowledging that God is sovereign. And by doing so, they were, in a sense, demonstrating submission to the plans of God even though they didn't make any sense to them. And all in all, by addressing the authority, the power and the plans of God, the church was putting God in his proper place of authority and putting self, themselves in their proper place of submission to him. They were acknowledging that God alone has power and authority to hear and answer their prayer. And when we, as a church, come together to pray, may our prayers be offered in reverence of who God really is. We need to remember that we are praying literally to the supreme authority of all the universe. The one who has all power and all wisdom. We need to humble ourselves when we come before him and pray that his kingdom will come, not our own. That his will will be done and not our own. And if we could distill down the way that this church began to pray in this text, I think the best way to describe it was this. They were acknowledging that God is God and that they were not. They were captivated by who God is so that the only response in their prayer was to acknowledge him, to lift up their eyes to God, to, to exult in who he was. And we have many needs. There's no doubt about it. We have many wants and desires and problems that we need to talk to God about, both individually and as a church. But we have to remember that he is God and we are not. We have to surrender and submit ourselves to his power, authority and plans. And if you take that to its intended end here by them addressing God in that way, you know what the unseen message there is? God, if you choose not to deliver us, we're OK with that. Because you are God and we are not. We have to approach God in reverence because he is worthy. They prayed reverentially. But number two, they prayed, they, the church asked specifically. Look at verse number 29. It says, and now, Lord, behold their threatenings. Some commentators draw a connection between this and the prayer of Hezekiah in Isaiah 37 when Hezekiah received that letter of threatening from the Assyrians. If you remember that story, Hezekiah got this terrible letter that, was gonna, that the Assyrians were going to come and destroy Israel. And what was Hezekiah's response? He took the letter into the temple. He spread it out before the Lord and he asked the God of the universe to intervene. And that's what the church is doing here in a way. They're spreading out the letter before the Lord and saying, God, can you do something about this? And they begin by expressing their problem. Behold, their threatenings. Let's say it a different way. They, they said, God, they've threatened us. They've told us to stop preaching in the name of your son, Jesus, or else they're going to harm us. They were being direct with God about what their problems were. And then they pray. It says, behold, their threatenings and grant unto thy servants. And they're asking God for three things. First, look here. It says, grant unto thy servants that with all boldness, they may speak thy word. They ask for boldness in the face of threatening. They were just told in verse number 18 and in verse number 21 to stop speaking in the name of Jesus or else, essentially. And you got to remember something about this. This really happened. These are real people. These were real threatenings with real problems. And these people that were threatened were real people with real families and real lives. This was, this was very real to them. They took it seriously. So without a doubt, there had to be fear. There had to be. They're human beings. 
There was probably a bit of terror, maybe even some hesitation. And what they knew is they needed something from God that they did not have. And that was heavenly boldness to stand on the truth and continue preaching the truth. They asked for boldness, then continue reading in verse number 30. By stretching forth thine hand to heal. This seems to be the idea of God affirming the message they wanted to boldly preach by his own power to heal. Something God literally did in Acts 3 when he allowed Peter and John to heal uh, that man at the gate. They were saying something effective. God, give us boldness to preach your word and by your own power, heal people as a testimony to the truth of the word that we preach. And then they asked, look at verse number 30 again, uh, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. The name that they were told to stop preaching in was the very name they asked God to do signs and wonders in. They were asking God to specifically answer their situation with boldness and miraculous power, not so that they would be safe, but so that everyone would see him and the one they were preaching about. Now, this is not about whether or not miraculous gifts are available to the church today. We are not going to get into that. We do not have time for that. But I know this for sure. The God who granted them boldness and power there and then is the same God who we serve today who can grant us boldness and power as well. Now, I don't know how that's going to look. I don't know if it'll look like the New Testament or if it'll look different. But I know that God is no different and he has power to answer our prayers. But what I want us to see is how specific they were. They were very clear on how they asked God to respond. They needed boldness and power to endure the threatenings they were facing. And they asked specifically and directly for it. They didn't beat around the bush. They went right to the, the issue and they asked specifically what they wanted from God. And brothers and sisters, we need boldness and power today just like they did then. And how will God show his power it is outside our tiny little human mind's ability to truly know. There's no way to truly comprehend or know. But what we do know is that God can and he desires to show his power to his church today. And we know that God can and, desire, and he desires to grant us boldness today. But we have to ask for it. We have to come to God intentionally seeking it, which makes me wonder what in the world could God do through this church if we would be intentionally specific about what we wanted God to do with this church? What could God do if we would just be serious about praying together in a united voice with a united heart? This church prayed reverentially and they prayed specifically for God to work. And this record of their prayer meeting ends by showing us exactly what God did for them. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled. God responded by literally physically shaking the place where they were meeting, sort of like a physical demonstration that he was listening. We don't know if this meant there was an earthquake in the city. We don't know if this meant God shook the temple or the house where they were at. All we know from the scripture is that God literally shook the place in a way saying, I hear you. I'm answering. And then it continues on. It says, uh, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, earlier in the chapter, when Peter was preaching to address the religious leaders, verse eight says, then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost said unto them, it's the same word used here in verse number 31. And in this time, the entire gathering was filled with the Holy Ghost. And based upon what happens next, I see it seems to uh, appear that this has to do with the filling that they needed for the ministry and service to God that was to come. 
because they had already received the Spirit at Pentecost. But God filled them with the Spirit anew after their prayer. And then look what it says in verse number 31. And they spake the word of God with boldness. The primary request that they had, that God would grant them boldness to preach. He did it. He graciously granted them their request for boldness and he filled them and with the spirit to do it. And if you keep reading the rest of chapter number four, you're going to see that God did not just answer that prayer, but he increased their unity. He gave them great grace and power and he increased their generosity. And I believe based upon this text of scripture that we as a church, literally us today, literally, this is not something that's just floating out there neither. This is literally something that could happen today that as a church, we can pray reverentially and specifically and God will answer our prayers. Now, it doesn't mean that he's bound to answer us immediately. Doesn't mean that. He may delay his answer. He may answer very slowly over time. But I believe that this text teaches us that we can pray with confidence that God cares for his church and he desires to answer the prayers of his church. In this case, in the face of threatening, God granted them boldness and he gave them unity and power. The prayer of our church may look a little bit different, but I believe we can trust God to answer our prayers in ways that we could not have otherwise anticipated. So if I were to summarize the main idea behind this particular text, it'd be this. Everything, everything in the experience of the church is a prayer-worthy matter, and we can trust that God will hear and answer us. Which leads to a simple question. Why don't we do this more often? Not individually, although that's probably something we could address, but like corporately. Why don't we do this more often? Spurgeon uh, once said, a prayerful church is a powerful church. But he also said the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a graceometer, and from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer. And we have testimony after testimony from the scriptures and from the people of this room of how God can work through prayer. And we should be, be quick because of it to run to God in prayer, to exalt in who he is and his great power and his might, to be quick to ask for specific things because we can trust him to answer. Listen, prayer is not our lucky rabbit's foot and it, we ought not treat it that way. And prayer is not a, a divine vending machine where you go and ask God for the things you want just so you can get the things you want. And prayer, I understand, is so much more than just bringing our needs and problems to God. But it is not less than that either. If we want to see God shake the place where we are assembled with his presence and power, if we truly want him to grow us into a gospel-centered, grace-filled community of believers who love God and people, we have to pray for it. So let's make a determination, both individually and corporately, to seek God for his plans and purposes to be accomplished and to trust that when we pray, he will answer us. So what would this look like if we were to pray this way here now? Well, we need boldness as a church to speak the word. And we need God to save souls through the gospel of Christ. 
If there's anything that we could specifically ask God for where we would be lacking, that would be it. Because it's not happening. It's not happening in my life, and it doesn't appear to be happening anywhere else. That's not necessarily just an indictment against us, although it is, but that's an encouragement to you to pray for it. You know, we just had the baptistry fixed a couple weeks ago. We had to get a breaker changed back there. And the guy asked, do you know if it works? And I said, I don't know. We haven't used it in a long time. And I was like, oof. Man, we don't, we just, we're not seeing that. So you know what we could do? We could sit down at the table and we could talk about, well, we don't see souls saved. There's nobody being baptized. And we could just talk about it and fret about it. But if we're going to talk about it anyways, let's intentionally talk about it to the one who can do something about it. So we need that. We need souls saved. We need boldness to preach the gospel. So let's ask for it. And maybe we could even ask in a similar fashion as the church. And I kind of looked at this and I wrote this out about how we could ask God to answer that. Maybe it'd be like this. Lord, you are God and you have made all things. By the word of your power, you have created the heavens and the earth and all that fills them. You are the God above all gods and the king above all kings. You alone are the sovereign Lord of the universe. In your word, you've said that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And through the words of your servants, you have made plain that the gospel is your power to salvation. Lord, grant to us boldness to speak your word without fear and save souls through the life changing good news of Jesus Christ so that the world will know and see your power and glory because you are worthy. What would happen if we prayed together like that? So as we close today, Let's reverentially pray together as a church for boldness to preach the word and for souls to be saved. When, when, we, when we close here in just a second, you don't have to wonder about what we're going to pray about. I just told you, we're going to pray for boldness to preach the word and for souls to be saved. And that when those souls come in, we would help them disciple and grow and mature to believers. And let's pray it in faith, believing that if we will ask, God will answer. It may not be this week. It may not be next week. But we do not know what God could do by the end of 2024. If we would faithfully, consistently, together in a united spirit, pray that God would give us boldness to preach his word and to share the gospel and that he would save souls. We don't know what would happen if we would do it. So let's do it. Let's close that way by going to God together in prayer for those things.